So, uh, uh, hi, it's Graham here. Sorry to interrupt your podcast listening like this, but uh, I wondered if you could do us a little favour. I haven't told Carol I'm going to do this, and frankly, I'm not sure she's going to find out. Let's maybe keep it that way, shall we? Uh, I don't think she listens to the podcast, so she won't hear that I've tacked this on to the beginning. But the European Security Blogger Awards, they're about to happen, and Smashing Security has been nominated in a couple of categories. Huzzah, huzzah! You can vote in the awards for your favourite security blogs and security podcasts, hint, hint, but you've only got a few days before the voting closes. So do it today. Do it now. Hit pause. Oh, not before I've told you the URL. It's smashingsecurity.com slash vote. That will redirect you through magic to the voting form. And, well, hey, made the best podcast co-hosted for the last six or so years by a Brit and a Canadian win. Um, yeah, over to you. Smashingsecurity.com slash vote. Thank you very much. We love you all, uh, at least the people who vote for us. Uh, but for now, back to your normal service. And uh, sorry about this interruption. If we were cleverer, all these pieces would fall into place and then we would understand what we have to do. Like we have to look behind the picture and then the, you know, the sunlight will come through the window, through the crystal in the staff and it will illuminate a bit of the floor and then we'll take up the carpet and then... There'll be a little effigy, and then we put that on the bag of sand, and then the portal opens, and we join Mensa. I need a drink. Smashing Security, Episode 213. No security smarts at Mensa, long-term identity theft, and GameStop's share frenzy, with Carol Terrio and Graham Cluley. Hello, hello, and welcome to Smashing Security, episode 213. My name's Graham Cluley. And I'm Carol Terrio. And we're joined this week by a regular returning guest. It's Mark Stockley. Hello, Mark. Hi. Hey, Hi. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show, Mark. Oh, it's fine. I had nothing else to do. <laughs> what have you been up to? I'm a teacher now. <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking homeschooling? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think Graham's doing I'm some homeschooling teacher. as well. Every single parent I know is complaining about homeschooling. Tell us about it. It's horrific. Oh, it's <laughs> it's a it's an opportunity to to get to know your children in a way that you probably didn't want to. <laughs> Do you find it too hard? Is that the problem? You don't know the answers. It's just <laughs> there's a reason they're a trained professional. Like people go to college to learn how to do this. And the yes. people who go to college to learn how to do this are the people who really want to learn how to do this. <laughs> and, you know, we were given about three minutes' notice this time, weren't we? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, tomorrow morning, you're a teacher again. <laughs> go tell all the people you work for. I posted on Twitter that maybe I was going to crowdsource my son's maths homework because it was beyond me how to do it. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to post these questions on Twitter and get other people to answer them for me. He's nine. He's nine, isn't he? He's he nine, must be yes. nine. He's nine. Yeah. It's, it, nine seems to be the age when people go to Twitter and go, my child's maths homework is completely impossible. I have, I have a theory that nine is the age at which UK school maths exceeds the average parent's ability to do their school maths. Because you start getting into things like perfect numbers and factors and stuff like that, which is, you know, useful everyday stuff. 
Okay, let's first thank this week's sponsors: One Password, CrowdSec, and Inside Security Intelligence Podcast from Recorded Future. Their support help us give you this show for free. Now, coming up on today's Smashing Security Show, Graham, what do you got? I'm gonna be talking to you about a completely mental cybersecurity issue. <laughs> okay, and Mark, what about you? Well, I, I'm going to be talking about how difficult it could be to go and work in another country. <laughs> okay, and I'm yakking all things GameStop. All this and much more coming up on this episode of Smashing Security. Now, chums, chums, have you ever had your IQ tested? Have either of you ever had that done? Does it count if you go to a website and do it? (laughs) On Facebook, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) The very fact that you're on Facebook tells me a lot about your IQ. I've Uh, never been on Facebook like that. Mark, you're you're a bit of a smarty pants. Have you ever had your IQ tested? I, I, I possibly. If I did, it was a very, very long time ago, so it can't have been on Facebook. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was not a, a very rigorous test. And actually, I'm not actually convinced that IQ tests are worth anything or tell you anything useful anyway. Would you join Would you join an organisation like Mensa? God, no. The club for people who <laughs> score 98th percentile or higher in an IQ test. No thickies allowed. Okay, I kind of like the idea of Mensa. Oh, do you? That's interesting. Why? What yes. Do you, what do you like about it, Carol? I don't know. I like the idea that smarty pants hang out together and share smarty, smarty ideas and come up with even smarter ones and then share them with the world and everything's better. Mm. I like that. So it's something which makes me a little bit uncomfortable about the idea. Because they don't want you in their club. I know. <laughs> no, well. <laughs> I know. It's just, it's just. I know, honey. It's, yeah. It's easy to turn down the knighthood you haven't been offered, isn't it, Graham? <laughs> what is it that makes people want to join a club? You know, they've scored highly in an IQ test, but they think, oh, you know what my social life needs? I need to hang out with other people who also chose to join the club after scoring highly in an IQ test. Says the guy who's in a chess club. I mean, come on. Maybe it's a public service. Maybe the rest of us need that for our social lives. (laughs) Get them out of circulation. (laughs) Yeah, we know where they all are. They're all happy in their little Is it a bit sad to be a member of Mensa, or is it just sour grapes that we're not members of Mensa? I don't know the answer to that. I think maybe just because you're not clever enough. If you were clever, you'd know the answer. You don't know if I am a member of Mensa. We'd know if Carol was a member because she'd tell us she was a member. All pe- members of Mensa <laughs> feel compelled to tell people and they will put it in their email sig and say that they're members of Mensa. What, they would have a t-shirt like saying, I'm a member of Mensa, like I'm the 11th best Briton in the entire universe? <laughs> Something like that? Wow. You think, okay, interesting. I don't know. It's complicated. It's complicated. I, I, don't, I don't know. But Mensa <laughs> is in the news this week. Mensa is in the news with allegations that they haven't been very smart about their computer security. You may have spotted in the Financial Times no. a chap called <laughs> Eugene Hopkinson. He was until recently the British Mensa board's technology officer. And he says he has been trying to convince their leadership team for the last couple of years that they need to stop storing passwords unsafely. He says that their passwords are basically stored in plain text. They're not sorted. They're not hashed. And if someone got hold of them, they would be able to exploit them. Oh, my God. Hold the phone for a sec. So they have an active technology officer on the Mensa board, the British board, Mm -hmm. 
he's working there right now. Well, he's not because he's just he's quit. He's gone to the press and said, <laughs> "Oh no, okay." But did he talk to the papers before he quit or after he quit? Do you know? Well, he wrote an open letter. Hopkinson says that sensitive data was being insecurely stored by Mensa, which included the IQ scores of members and failed applicant scroll as well. <laughs> You wish. I, I think, as we've already established, the IQ scores aren't secret, are they? Because they'll just tell you those. <laughs> Payment card details, passwords, email addresses and home addresses. Now, Hopkinson, he fell out with Mensa last week. There was a board meeting where he raised his concerns again. And he wrote this open letter. He said, if a breach is found to have taken place, because there were rumours that Mensa had maybe suffered some kind of security breach, he says, I've got no faith that the board and the office will report it adequately or take sufficient action. Oh, my God. I wonder if he was recording that board meeting. Like, for him to go to a board meeting and say, guys, 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 we need to take this seriously. And they're like, yeah, no, no. And then he goes to the press. Right. I'd be very, very disappointed if that recording isn't just people going, well, I don't understand. Could you explain <laughs> that to me again? I said, no, yeah. look, the password is stored in plain text. Yeah, no, no. Sorry, I'm on level 240 of Candy Crush. <laughs> I can't pay attention to two things at once. Multitasking is a sin. Now, I've been approached. You, mem you remember during Watergate that Woodward and Bernstein got approached by Deep Throat, who gave, you know, and it's all <laughs> top secret, you know, <laughs> little meetings, right? Yeah. I have been approached by my own Deep Throat from Mensa, in, in fact, two different deep throats who claim that they have inside information which they've shared with me, one of whom says he has a recording of the board meeting. And he's quite defensive of Hopkinson. He says, oh, you know, they're trying to frame Hopkinson. They're trying to say that he's bad. The other one says Hopkinson is a right pain in the arse. <laughs> he's causing trouble and that the board were all over this problem. And in fact, it was Hopkinson's own failure to fix these issues, which has now resulted in him basically being given the boot. And you're covering it on the show because now you've got two little secret moles giving you information. Do <laughs> they know of each other, do you think? I don't know. I mean, Did they... you say, hey, Deep Throat, did you just say, how am I going to identify you? And he says, Deep Throat. And you go, no, I've already got a Deep Throat. I've already got one. I need another one. Give me another name. Is this just some very, very complicated initiation right to get into Mensa? <laughs> Is this, this yeah. is actually, Graham's applied, we're, exactly. We're just not clever enough to figure this out. Like, if we were cleverer, all these pieces would fall into place and then we would understand what we have to do. Like, we have to look behind the picture and then, the, you know, the sunlight will come through the window, through the crystal in the staff, and it'll illuminate a bit of the floor and then we'll take up the carpet and then there'll be a little effigy and then we put that on the bag of sand and then the portal opens and we join Mensa. I need a drink. You've been homeschooling for too long, haven't you, Mark? It's, it's begun to get to you. Um, now, Mensa, they've told the Financial Times that the passwords were encrypted and that they were now looking into hashing them as well. Now, of course, there's this, there is this misconception amongst the public about what encryption means and possibly yeah. within the board of Mensa as well. Because... Encryption is sort of waved around as this magic talisman, isn't it? It's like, oh, the data's encrypted, then you're safe. You don't have to worry about things like that. But well, I, I hope you heard me snorting derisively <laughs> like a Mensa member when you said encryption. <laughs> it was like an involuntary, <laughs> I think you'll find. So if, if you simply encrypt a password, <laughs> it will be possible to decrypt the password, right? Yeah. So if you use a... 
standard encryption algorithm. The beauty of encryption is you can encrypt a message and then decrypt it to understand it at the other end. And what's a much better idea is to store a cryptographic checksum, often called a hash, of the password. And you can then, when someone goes to your website and enters their password, your website can generate another cryptographic checksum from what they've entered and compare those two checksums and say, oh, they must have entered the password. So you don't have to store the actual passwords. You can just store a hash or a checksum password. And even better, without getting too nerdy, you can apply a bit of salt to the hash uh, or before you create the hash um, to make it harder to look up in what's called a rainbow table. Anyway, that's all nerdy stuff, which I'm sure Mensa are all over. Um, well, apparently not. Apparently not. But it doesn't sound like Mensa was really following best practices. And if you visit Mensa's website right now, you will see Ooh. that the website is down for maintenance. If you go to the British Mensa website, mensa.org.uk. Well, because their technology officer is out on his ass. <laughs> well, maybe. Right. But, They're um, sitting ducks now. <laughs> Maybe they would have been wise to get a, a technology officer who wasn't actually a member of Mensa, rather than just recruiting from that pool of people who choose to join the Mensa club. Maybe it'd be sensible as well to, oh, you know, this is quite important. Maybe we should bring in someone who understands technology and can properly protect this data, rather than us decide what the data security practices should be. You know what? Purely based on what you've said, right? Mm. I'm feeling really bad for Mr. Eugene Hopkinson, right. who seems to go to these meetings and go, dudes, look, we need to take this seriously. And I'm like, yeah, 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 you don't know enough. Aren't you a 142? <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Eugene. Thanks, Eugene. Sit down. What, what we call a charity case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, Eugene. Well, that's Eugene's story of what happened, of course. But uh, Deep Throat number, was it number two or number one? Anyway, one of my Deep Throats said it was the other way around. And he was causing trouble. And in fact, the board were like, you should have fixed this, mate. You can't come here moaning about it. Can I just say, this is exactly how I imagine Mensa would operate. <laughs> so so <laughs> everybody knows that you're not supposed to store your passwords in place. Everybody who cares to know, who, who has any business yeah. in this at all, understands that you, you shouldn't store your passwords in plain text. And they have known that for a couple of decades. So we're not talking about best practice. We're, we're talking about what was best practice. Mm. many, many years ago. And I, I imagine that there has been, I, I like to fantasise that there has been a two-decade conversation going on at board level in Mensa <laughs> about exactly what they should do. They're probably having arguments about which hashing <laughs> algorithm to use. <laughs> well, there's a slight, <laughs> there is a slight twist in the tale because since Hopkinson's resignation or was he booted out, it's unclear, um, Personal details of a couple of its directors have apparently been accessed and there's been information posted up on Pastebin as well, which appears to have come from Mensa's servers. And they've informed the ICO of security breach. Eyebrows are being raised regarding who might have been responsible for this. Maybe one of your deep throats. Maybe. I'm not going to point fingers in any particular direction, but there is a third-party security company, presumably they're not members of Mensa, who've been brought in to investigate, and maybe criminal charges <laughs> I, will we, We've follow. got a real problem we need to solve. <laughs> Can anyone here solve this problem? <laughs> no, no, can't okay. have, no, no smart people. <laughs> We're going to get some outside people in with lower yep. IQs to actually yep. solve the problem, yes. 
So um, I've reviewed Tempted to join Mensa now. No. Having heard all How of this. do you know we're not members? Carol, you can keep on protesting like that. I'm not protesting. I'm just asking, what is your evidence? I think most Mensa members are twats. So maybe you are. Member. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. That better make the edit. <laughs> I feel like this story tells you everything that you need to know about IQ. The world is full of people who are demonstrably, obviously, patently clever, intelligent, thoughtful, <laughs> productive, useful members of society who happen to not have very high IQ. I don't think the correlation between high IQ and actual you know, success and usefulness and all the things we actually care about exists <laughs> at all. So if you've got a high IQ... You see, Graham, don't worry. That's don't great. Worry. Cool. Go and join the high yeah. IQ, club, IQ club. That's fine. But don't for a second think that that actually indicates or means anything other than that you did well on a specific kind of test. Said like a true person spurned yes. by the Mensa <laughs> Club. Damn it. <laughs> Mark, what have you got for us this week? I've got a question. I suspect one of you has a, a yes answer to this. Has either of you ever tried working in another country? Yes, many times. So how did that go? Um, well, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, you are working in another country, aren't you, Carol? Yeah. Did you get a job in the UK while you were still in Canada? Or did you um, move over to the UK and then get a job? No, I've done both. I don't, I'm not sure how legal the first ones were, but I was like basically <laughs> waiting tables for two pounds an hour. So I don't think anyone's going to give a shit. But uh, yeah. Uh, would you say it was a, an easy process? Was no. there a lot of admin bureaucracy yes 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 <laughs> much 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 <laughs> it was extremely difficult and i didn't marry my way in just for those that don't know well no you married a wookie so you <laughs> yeah exactly well you know uh so what about you graham have you ever tried to work in another country um well well not permanently i mean i i do do work in other countries well, oh. in the Oh. In the old days, before all this, imagine me waving my arms around now. Um, I used to go and uh, do talks in other countries. I imagine that's probably quite easy, isn't it? Just get on a plane, go over there. They write you a massive check and then you give some um, presentation you've given a hundred times before and then go home. <laughs> More or less, that's, yeah. Have yeah. you seen it recently? You need, a, you need a work visa. I haven't, I haven't obviously done one for about a year, but uh, yeah. So we've all had some experience of trying to do work with people in another country. And I, so we've all got some understanding about how difficult that can be. Hilarious stories, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet, I, I think it's going to be very hard for anybody on this podcast or listening to this podcast to beat the story of Nidhi Razdan. So Nidhi is a seasoned journalist working with NDTV in India, that's New Delhi TV. And in November 2019, Nidhi was invited to speak at an event organised by the illustrious Harvard Kennedy School. Ooh. And Graham, you, you get a lot of speaking gigs. Yeah. Have you ever done one for Harvard? I haven't ever done one for Harvard, no, oh. but I'm available yeah, if, they, if they want me. Maybe if you had a higher IQ. <laughs> yeah. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> one of the organisers of the event contacted Nidhi to ask if she'd be interested in applying for a vacant position at the school. Um, it offers uh, a Master's of Liberal Arts Journalism degree, and that includes working journalists on the staff. So she thought, that sounds like me. And yeah. off offers like that don't come along every day. So she submitted a CV and an application. And then a few weeks later, she was invited to an online interview. And it obviously mm -hmm. went well, because a few weeks after that, 
She received her offer letter from HR, the Human Resources. And what's the name? What's the name of this uh, school? Harvard. You may have heard of it. No, no, <laughs> the Stanford School. The which one in Harvard? It was the the Harvard Kennedy School. Kennedy School is that is that what it's called? Is that the full name? I, I believe so. <laughs> I stopped reading at Harvard, to be honest. Not that I, not that I'm a snob, but you know, I think that would sound pretty cool. She'd say, to, "Oh yeah, I've got a job at Harvard." You know, you would, wouldn't you? I would. <laughs> Maybe it's like the Four Seasons, <laughs> the Four Seasons Landscaping <laughs> Company, Four Seasons School of Journalism. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so she's invited to this interview, online interview, obviously. Uh, obviously, goes well. A few weeks later, she got an offer letter from mm. Human Resources, and while that was going on, her employers received, you know, the the kind of correspondence that you, you know, when you're going to get the job. Because the people right. you know start getting the requests for references and things like that. Yeah. So so all that's happening as well. So this is happening, right? Mm. The wheels of bureaucracy are turning. And yes, mm. she did get the job offer. And then she decided she was going to make that life-changing decision. So in June 2020, she goes on Twitter and she announces to her fans that she's leaving NDTV after 21 years off to the green pastures of Harvard. How cool. Kennedy School. Kennedy, uh, Harvard, Harvard Landscape and Gardening. No one's going to pay attention to that bit, Carol. <laughs> oh. That's like Oxford Brooks. You know, it's, yeah. it's, like, it's Oxford. That's all you need to know. <laughs> okay. Anyway, after <laughs> many weeks of back and forth over her visa, which I'm sure oh you can understand, Caroli. Yes. Uh, then she had to get into the actual nuts and bolts of actually teaching. So she's getting documents about class schedules, details of her class and what she's going to be teaching and so on. She's so excited. And then, you know, it is a bureaucratic process and everybody understands that. And bureaucratic processes get even worse during a pandemic. But by late 2020, she was starting to get very frustrated with all of this. Uh, there seemed to be an awful lot of administration to wade through. How much time had gone past uh, So I believe she was approached at the back end of 2019. And I think... The, so the a year. Offer, yeah, so we're, we're... She has no idea what she's talking about. Mm. My God, that's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so far, not impressed. <laughs> anyway, so we're coming to, I guess, kind of late 2020. And she's starting to get very frustrated. There seems to be a lot of administration to wade through. And her salary is being held up by IT failures brought on by the COVID pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. uh-huh. now, of, course, of course, it's fair to say... Things are harder in a pandemic. Nobody needs to be told that who's listening to this. Nine times 16, right, boys? Shush, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you still have to treat people the right way. And if you're a world-renowned institution, this is not how you welcome someone from another country into a new job when there's a pandemic. So finally, she had enough of all of this. She had enough of this admin and and not being paid. And so she decided she was going to escalate things to the head of HR at Harvard. It's, mm-hmm. I want to speak to the manager time. Um, and it was when she did that that she discovered that every word of the entire process that she had been through had been a complete and utter lie and that she had been scammed. So the approach was a lie. The rigorous 90-minute interview that she attended was a lie. The email correspondence from official Harvard email addresses was a lie. The work visa was a lie. The orientation event that she was invited to but couldn't go to because it was cancelled because of COVID was a lie. 
The requests for references that her colleagues received were lies. The letters that she received that were <laughs> signed by luminaries at Harvard were all lies. Oh, my goodness. The only thing in the entire year-long episode that doesn't seem to be a lie is the original invitation to speak in an event. Huh. Anyone who's interested should go and check out Niddy's own write-up of this on the NDTV website because this is her story and, and you should go read it in yeah, her yeah, words yeah. too. But I don't get the impression that she knows. So she's passed the details on to law enforcement, but I don't think she knows what happens other than that she now knows that she spent a year handing over personal information to a bunch wow. of total yeah. strangers who were clearly very, very invested in this process. It was it, it, Interestingly enough, she's clearly a, a, a savvy individual. And after yeah. the initial approach, she went and did some Googling and said, like, is there actually a course at Harvard where they have people like me? Like, does this look like this exists? Yeah. So... I think that that is what is most interesting. Well, two things about this story that really, really stand out, I think. The first one is the extraordinary lengths that the scammers went to, the length of time that they persisted with this, and the amount of effort that they must have put into this. Yeah, just for like a teacher, it's, you know, like we were, we just had someone on the show talking about like high value targets, yeah. right? And that only this kind of stuff would only happen to like CEOs or the rich or something, uh, the notorious, where she's just like. Well, she's a journalist. Yeah. She's a TV personality. The professorship is being dangled as a carrot. Yeah. And yeah. so whoever has her identity effectively is then able to be her, this very, very connected individual. And, you know, you can, I, I don't know if you've ever tried to do this, but if you phone people up and ask them for stuff, it's amazing how often they will give it to you. And so if you phone up and you say, you know, I am a famous journalist and I can prove it, you can talk your way into hotels, you can talk your way into bank accounts. It's a very privileged place to be, I think. So, but the interesting, I guess that's the open question about is, is how targeted was this? Mm. You know, is she one of, you know, a number yeah. of high-profile people who have been duped? Or was this specifically aimed at her for a particular reason? And I, I don't think we, we even know what the fallout from this is yet or how they've used those details. Someone else might be doing her job right now at Harvard Business School, right? Pretending to be her. I wonder if she has, you know, confidential sources that somebody yes. might want to... You know, there are there are regimes that pay extraordinary amounts of money to put surveillance yeah. wear on particular people's phones, for example. So, you know, it's a, being a journalist can be a dangerous profession. So has she got her job back at NDTV after all this? Yes, yes, <laughs> is she, yes, she, is she, does, <laughs> she does seem to still be working for NDTV. Okay, good. Okay. She published this on the NDTV website. Um, right. And, and, yeah, it does say... I'm still an NDTV journalist or, you know, that, that was certainly the impression that I got. You're right, Mark. This is, this is an extraordinary level of effort for the scammers to go to. We don't normally see this sort of, you know, this months and but months of work. Isn't that a very interesting choice of words? Because that's the other side of this. You said we don't normally see this, but how would we know? Mm. How would we know? Yeah. If you had asked her halfway through this process, she wouldn't have yeah. told you she was being scammed because she didn't believe she was. 
Because what an extraordinary thing to discover and admit to yourself that that people are capable of doing this, that they're capable of this kind of devious behaviour, and that you're capable of falling for it. And I do wonder how, how many people are subject to this kind of scam who never discover it, who never find out, who just continue to believe what they're told. I wonder if one of us is being scammed right now. Maybe one of us believes we are just participating in a security podcast and either as a, an irregular contributor or as a regular co-host. And in fact, this is all subterfuge. I have it on good authority that one of the people on this podcast has been approached by a couple of quote-unquote whistleblowers. <laughs> a whistleblowing deep throat is quite a trick, isn't it? <laughs> Depends where the whistle is, I suppose. <laughs> Bro, what have you got for us this week? Oh, we're talking GameStop. We're talking GameStop. Now, today, right now, it's Tuesday, 2nd of February, 4 p.m. UK time. And the GameStop, GameStop stock price is 91.69, right? So at the end of my segment, we're going to see what it is. And then you nerds out there can work out how long it took me to do this story. Okay. So we're yakking GameStop just to figure out what happened. Mm. We're going to go through a few basics first, right? And I... Mark, I know that you uh, dabble with the stock market, so you need to dive in because you know more about this than I do. Okay, Graham, you just butt in because you butt in, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so GameStop. GameStop is a company that sells games like it's a retail store. It sells related game paraphernalia. As the bee put it, it's like uh, the thing you'd find between a donut shop and a makeup retailer in an American mall, which I love. Between a Blockbusters and a Tandy. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say, Graham? It's like what? Oh, I, I, I don't know, but I've, I've heard it's a bit rubbish. Isn't that right? No, it's not rubbish. It's just been failing for a while now. So from a stock perspective, people would agree with you. It's a bit rubbish. Mm-hmm. But from a retailer point of view, that is where you go to buy your games. Now, think about it. You guys have Switches and whatever consoles. Um Maybe five years ago, you guys would buy a hard physical copy of a game. You wouldn't just download it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's why I say it's a bit rubbish, because I think most people these days don't buy their games in a store, do they? They either buy them online and have them delivered to them, or they, they literally are inside the video game console's online store and it automatically downloads. And and GameStop kind of suffered, I think, from that. There's been a kind of slow decline since January 14. So then it was about 50 bucks a share, right? Do you think they were just they were holding on for the the, the turnaround <laughs> when people suddenly realize that they can only download so many things and it's easier <laughs> to go buy physical media. Okay, so I know people that actually really, really want the physical media because they've had consoles break on them before. They don't like that it's in the cloud. They can't access. They don't remember a password. And they just feel more comfortable owning the physical game. Like it's Are they members of Mensa who smoke pipes and have long beards? <laughs> well, they're related to me, so I don't know. <laughs> um so in January 14, GameStop was about 50 bucks a share, okay? Q pandemic. Now, since then, it's been going down slowly, slowly, slowly for all the reasons we've talked about, right? And Q yeah. pandemic hits an all-time low of like fiver per share. Yeah. Right. And they're even set to close down 450 shops in 2021. They make this announcement. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, like you say, the idea of the pandemic didn't help people because they're forced to get real cozy with their homes and online gaming. So what are they doing? They're downloading games directly. Yeah. yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And people don't want to buy physical media because other game players probably don't wash their hands. And Mary Kwanda, right? We don't want all that fussy, fussy, fuss, fuss stuff around our house anymore. Right. We want it all spick and span. Do you think there's a big overlap between the game and world <laughs> and Mary Kondo? Well, you know. <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, so back to GameStop, right? So, in bounce the short sellers, right? So, short sellers or short selling, simply put, is like a trading technique for people like hedge fund managers or individual investors or speculators or what I'd call gamblers, personally. And and people, hedge funds, big hedge funds, decided they were looking at GameStops, like failing, failing, mm. failing stock price. And they were like, hey, maybe there's a short here we can do. Maybe we can basically buy some shares or promise to buy shares at a price in the future. And because uh, they're definitely going to decline in price. Yeah, they're making a bet, basically, that the share price is going to go down. And that's how they're going to make their money. Okay, okay. I'm going to give an example, okay? Mm-hmm. Mark, you have to pay very close attention and tell me okay. where I fuck okay. up on this, okay? Okay, yep. okay Graham, you're my, you're my guinea pig in this one. All right, okay, interesting. So, let's say we're talking about a donut. I've got a donut. Guinea pigs do not like donuts. <laughs> I think you'll find it's carrots and lettuce is what we like. Okay, and you're smart enough, not Mensa level, but you're smart <laughs> enough to figure out that a donut in five days is going to be worth way less than a donut right now just out of the fryer. Yeah. Right? Yeah, probably. And you see it as a sure thing that if you buy the option to sell the donut for two bucks to somebody, right, and you promise to buy it back later at whatever price it will be in five days' time, you might turn out a little coin. So let's take in five days time, it turns out someone values the donut only 10 cents because it's all crusty, gross, gross. And you, $1.90 out of that sale. You with me? I'm with you, yeah. Okay. But what happens if the donut improves with age? Because it's using Mm. a new fermented sourdough <laughs> dough base, <laughs> and people go nuts for it. And in five days, the sc- the price skyrockets to ten bucks per donut. But you've promised to buy it back at whatever price. Oh. You're now in a loss of eight bucks. Oh yeah. yes, yes. That's the the part about short selling that you don't hear so much about. I think. Yeah, because no one likes to advertise when they fuck up, <laughs> right? But it, but it, it, what I mean is, if you buy a share. And it goes yeah. down in like the, the downside of buying a share is that it goes to zero. Mm-hmm. So there is a limit to how much you can lose. You you know at the beginning, right. okay, if I if I spend this much money, I might lose all of it. And that's how much money you've lost. Whereas I think if you short something, yeah, the danger is that the price goes up. There isn't actually a cap on how high the price can go. So your your risk is potentially much, much higher. Yeah, because the short sale's infinite, right? So yeah. if the stock price could continue to rise with no limit. Hmm. So these hedge fund guys on Wall Street borrow shares in the company and sold them with the promise to buy them back at a later date. Okay. You know, they're waiting for it to go down the poo-poo hole. Yeah. Uh, and then they would collect their prize money because that was the game plan. That was their bet. Yeah, and they're, they're not imagining that a horde of gamers are suddenly going to go to these shops and start buying physical media in the middle of a pandemic. Right, it, it 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 seems implausible that the the share price is going to go up. Exactly, Graham. In Swagger, a Reddit community called Wall Street Bets. Okay, mm-hmm. more than four million people follow this feed. 
and sharing tips and tricks and thoughts on the market. Been doing this for years. Amateur investors and diehards can all be found there. Mm -hmm. So they get together and they all say, we're going to save GameStop. We're going to have a movement and we're going to buy all the shares back. We're not going to let Wall Street kill these guys. And when you buy shares, the value ticks upwards. And when millions and millions of people invest and buy shares, the valuation skyrockets. So it went from the lowly fiver all the way up to uh, 350 or almost 400 bucks per share. Right? So if you bought 1,000 shares, 5,000 bucks. Oh, God, nine-year-old maths. Right? Let's go, boys. 1,000 shares, 1,000 <laughs> shares at five bucks a share. And suddenly it's 347 bucks per share. What do you got? Way more do, money. Do, 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 do. I'm on this podcast to get away from the maths homework. <laughs> 342,000. Jesus. God. I have no maths left. <laughs> <laughs> I left them all on the kitchen table. Okay, now the problem here with all this is this leaves the hedge funds heavyweights who attempted to cash in on GameStop's failing, they're feeling the heat. Yep. Because they promised to buy it back at a future valuation, and now that valuation is way freaking higher. Oh, the poor hedge funds. <laughs> oh, the poor little hedge funds. <laughs> Won't someone think of the hedge fund managers? Melvin Capital Management was forced to seek a rescue package. Being at the center of the kerfuffle over GameStop, it lost 53% on its investment in January. I'm not crying, you're crying. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. I've got got some sand in my head. (laughs) Another one, Maple Lane Capital, ended with a roughly 45% loss. Could we get some black and white photos and like a PowerPoint and just have their names in a sort of... You know, like a really ornate font underneath, maybe with the dates. Like those obits they do at the Oscars. I think that'd be great. Well, there's loads of speculation as to why this happened. Like, was this like a movement that was kind of, you know, spurned on by this Reddit community? Or was it just people who were bored and they happened just to kind of glance past it and go, oh, this sounds fun. I'll try and get involved too, because I've got a thousand pounds to, sh- you know, or a thousand bucks to burn. Or maybe some people were starving going, oh my God, I really need cash quick. This could be a way. Now, of course, the big investors started freaking the fuck out, right? Crying foul. Yep. And because um, they were out game by a bunch of nerds, right? <laughs> and it hurt their professional investor ego. Have they not been warned that the price of shares can go up as well as down? <laughs> <laughs> Have they not watched the ads? <laughs> Dare these people pull their assets and then use them to make money from the fluctuation of stocks. Exactly. And How dare people band together and manipulate the market? <laughs> Do you own a three piece suit? Do you own a Hermes scarf? Now, of course, this seems unfair to us, I think, because, you know, they're basically just bitching because, um, you know, someone's beating them because they're using new platforms that they hadn't thought about. And they did it rather cleverly. However, the upshot of when Wall Street kingpins whine in unison, Mm. people listen. Mm. So regulators in Washington are now keeping an eye on a possible market manipulation in social media groups. So we've got that. Thanks. We also have the digital investment app Robinhood. This was a central app in this whole, um, I don't know what to call it, a fiasco. 
a... This, this is a share buying app or something you can just put on your phone, right? Yeah, it's like a stock market app. And last week it restricted right. trades in GameStop, allowing investors to sell, but not to buy. A surefire way of trying to push the prices down. In in unrelated news, I understand that one of the uh, one of the companies that stood to lose substantially from the increase in GameStop shares uh-huh. was quite a, quite a serious investor in Robinhood. Ah, oh, interesting. Although interesting. The, the, the CEO of Robinhood has been on TV telling everyone that will listen that these two things are entirely unrelated. Um, according to The Guardian, the company insists that this was for technical reasons, that they stopped the uh, investors being able to buy rather than a desire to protect the hedge funds. But, of course, small investors are pissed off. So, one, they've taken out a class action suit against Robin Hood for knowingly uh, manipulating the market. And they've been flooding the Robin Hood app with one-star ratings. And where it gets interesting is Google has salvaged the rating by removing more than 100,000 one-star <laughs> reviews. So basically taking the side of the hedge funds. What do you guys think about that? Were these automated bad reviews or were they done by hand by angry investors? I, 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 I sort of think if they were legitimate bad reviews and we don't like what they did, then that's fair enough. But if it was an automated bot or something that was doing them, then... Google feels like it's within its rights to I, remove yeah, the bad Yeah, I, I feel like these two things are quite separate because from Google's point of view, you to think, what, what is the purpose of the reviews? Well, the purpose of the reviews is to help people choose things based on the opinions mm. of others. So if I organise a campaign, which is very obviously just meant to trash the reputation of a company by leaving one-star reviews, mm. those reviews are no longer really very useful to the to the people who are Shopping for apps, I think. Yeah, but that if is, if a hundred people do it because they all feel they may be acting as a collective, but they all feel that's the right thing. But I, but I think what you're looking for is the honest, so the wisdom of the crowd, and and in order to get the wisdom of the crowd, the crowd isn't supposed to agree with itself in advance what it's going to say and then go and sort of act as a union. Oh, bad people for being a community. <laughs> Fuck, don't you realize you're ruining everything the company is trying to do? Does anyone else see the irony in the company being named Robin Hood and then shutting down trading for individual investors? That's cropped up, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Markets are attempting to claw back, obviously, the losses uh, that were felt early Monday, kicking off what's going to be a turbulent February month. And this is not the last of this. So there's already been forays into AMC. Very similar story to this, as far as I can see, and BlackBerry. So technology firm, slightly different story. But the idea of having failings and being propped up by the market and having individuals or this movement underpinned by this idea of let's save these companies. The question is, does GameStop value, you know, does it deserve this valuation that it currently has? Well, maybe now, currently... Maybe it's a pretty good valuation. But on the weekend, two days ago, it was uh, much, much more. Should we check what it is now? Should we check oh, what the valuation the stock is? Oh, yeah. Price in front of me. Yeah. I'm looking at the chart. The chart looks like it's basically a horizontal line for several years and then a vertical line. <laughs> <laughs> and it's coming down. So it's it's now 130, 111 US dollars right now. So interesting. We'll see what's mm. going to happen. It's crazy, crazy time. I worry so much about the people that get caught up in this frenzy late in the game and are investing their life savings. 
And um, just be careful, folks. This is real money. This is what worries me about this story. Because yeah. I, I, I feel like a lot of people were kind of declaring a victory lap. Yeah. Mm. These people coming together on Reddit as if, as if they all had exactly the same uh, intention and they were all acting as one for the same reasons. And, th- you know, they all kind of taught the hedge fund managers a lesson. And maybe they did. And I hope that everybody gets out of this with their shirt. Well, they won't. <laughs> of course they won't. It's impossible that everyone... You know, the share price is supposed to reflect the actual intrinsic value. All you're saying is, with the short sell, I don't see a future in GameStop. I don't see a future in a store that's run the way it's run that sells physical media. And I agree with that. I don't see a future for that store. That store is, you know, that share price looks like it's going to go down and down and down and down. And so... Bet you wished you'd invested if you had Mensa. But but the the, the purpose of the share price <laughs> is not to make me... It's not to make me rich. Just, he just <laughs> doesn't understand, Crow. He doesn't understand. You and me... We're all right with it. He can't get his head around it. It's a bit too troubling. Try and ask him about factorials. The idea that anyone can say what that group is doing and and speak for the whole group and say, this is the mind of the group, I find quite concerning. I mean, we don't know that there weren't hedge fund representatives in that group. Oh, totally. It could have been a pump and dump scheme. Exactly. Exactly. There could well be institutional investors taking advantage of, of this uh, this collective thing. And, and it's true of every, every stock bubble and every stock market bubble in history is, you know, they happen because the people in them say this one is different. You know, for whatever reason, they say this one's different. It's, it's a different kind of bubble. Uh, you know, it's happening for different reasons. It's got different kind of people involved. We're, we're teaching the, the man a lesson or whatever. And they are all the same, always. And they always have the same outcome. And eventually the share price will come back down and somebody will lose. So the story isn't over yet. Do you do yoga? <laughs> I haven't since the pandemic started. Can you tell? <laughs> hey, Clue Clue, did you hear my uh, crowd sec special interview that I did? Yes, yes, yeah, I've heard it. Yeah, did it's great. you? Yeah. Okay. I I don't know if I don't know if I believe you. So tell me everything you know about crowd sec. Go. Oh, okay. Um, CrowdSec, uh, they're building a community uh, where you, SecOps and DevOps can join forces around the world and actually make a difference against all the new attacks which are coming out. Um, Because no matter what your business size is, CrowdSec offers an adaptive response to security issues such as um, credential stuffing, port scans, password brute forcing, and much, much more. Okay, tell me how they analyze visitors' behaviors. What do they do with, the, with malicious traffic, for example? <laughs> that, okay, yeah, they it, they analyze uh, your visitors' behavior. They they deal with the malicious traffic, and oh yes, they automatically share details across the community to ensure everyone is protected. So the more data that CrowdSec aggregates, the stronger it gets. Okay, that's great, except you forgot the most important thing. It's free and it's open source, so anyone can benefit from this. So join the CrowdSec community and let's make the internet safer together. Find out more at crowdsec.net slash smashing. And Smashing Security listeners, there's a special offer just for you. Go and join the user community and you could win a Google Pixel 5. Just go to crowdsec.net slash smashing. And thanks to CrowdSec for supporting the show. Hey, Graham. Hey. 
Now that it's 2021, are you ready to admit that maybe your brain is turning to mush? <laughs> Why are you saying that? You, are you thinking I'm getting forgetful? Um, yes, often, very. And I'm a little bit worried about it. I, I suppose most of us, you know, working from home all the time. I mean, how, how the heck do you even remember a password in these scenarios? Nice segue, eh? Yeah, well, I use a good password manager. I, in fact, use one password. One password, that's one with a one, right? That's right. One yeah. password. It's a great password manager. It works for home use. It works for families. It works for business. So I run a little business here at home. Um, and it means, and imagine I worked in a bigger business, right? Imagine I was a part of the remote workforce. I could still work safely online, make it really easy for me to create and use strong passwords or share them with my colleagues. Oh, and tell you what, now that all of us are working from home and your computer is being used not just for work, but also for home stuff more mm-hmm. often than ever before, this kind of stuff keeps everything nicely segregated. Yeah, right? and uh, listeners can find out more and they can try 1Password for free for 14 days at onepassword.com. And thanks to them for supporting the show. Recorded Future delivers the world's most technically advanced security intelligence to disrupt adversaries, empower defenders, and protect organizations. Well, their podcast, Inside Security Intelligence, takes a deep dive into the world of cyber threat intelligence. They share stories from the trenches and operations floor. They give you the lowdown on established and emerging adversaries, whether it's the solar winds breach, 5G conspiracy theories or Russian election interference, Inside Security Intelligence gives you a fresh take from a variety of industry experts. Search for the Inside Security Intelligence podcast in all good podcast apps. And thanks to Recorded Future for sponsoring the show. And welcome back. Can you join us at our favourite part of the show, the part of the show that we like to call Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week is the part of the show where everyone chooses something they like. Could be a funny story, a book that they've read, a TV show, a movie, a record, a podcast, a website, or an app. Whatever they wish. Doesn't have to be security-related necessarily. Better not be. Well, my Pick of the Week this week is not security-related. My Pick of the Week is a TV show, another TV show I've been binging on this time, a documentary. And it is a documentary about the rise of the Murdoch dynasty. The extraordinary story of how Rupert Murdoch has managed to really have so much influence over world events, things going on. I've the world. watched some of this at your behest. I loved it. <laughs> it's pretty good, isn't it? It's absolutely fascinating. It's three episodes, and it's if you saw um, there was another BBC documentary called The House of Trump. And it reminds me rather of that because you get these figures in the public eye, people like Alistair Campbell, who used to be Tony Blair's right-hand man, yeah, uh, Nigel Farage and others speaking very, very frankly and honestly, which often, you know, you don't always get <laughs> in documentaries, um, about somebody and about his family. And it's very much about the machinations that have gone on behind the scenes for political influence, sometimes to the benefit of the Murdoch family. Um, and also how uh, his children have been battling to gain control of his empire when he eventually pops his clogs. 
And of course, there's a fair bit as well about the phone hacking scandal too. Um, and yes. people like Rebecca I noticed, Brooks. can I inter- mm. interrupt? I noticed that they kind of skipped over the pie slap in the face during yes. the hearing. Yes. Which I thought was a little bit uncool because that is a memory that you and I share. Because <laughs> I think I had a really bad back or something and you actually came to do a sympathy visit. That's right. And we we that ha- we were watching it live on TV, and is, that happened. And it was a f- is that the oh. one where Rupert Murdoch's then wife lands a serious right yes. hook on someone? Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. Wendy Ding. Mm. Wendy Ding. It was curious yep. how they edited around that in the show because they sort of suggested it, but didn't talk. I mean, I don't think it's meant to be the. F- I mean, it is to be honest. It's a bit of frippery. It's not important to the story, but oh, really? But, but they, frippery. <laughs> yes, but they. Frippery. But it was bizarre because they did have a little bit of footage around it but it was it was that should peculiar. be our show name security frippery yeah <laughs> frippery anyway frippery. it is a marvelous documentary i can really recommend it um it is uh, seconded fascinating the rise what, of the what's Murdoch it on din- what's it on it is available on bbc iplayer don't know if it's available anywhere else but um go and check it out the rise of the murdoch dynasty links in the show notes mark what's your pick of the week my pick of the week is a it's a website called SketchUp, and I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you a little story. <laughs> so, gather round. Yeah, we've got time so for way, this. Yeah. <laughs> Do you need a pee, Grim? <laughs> I've got a little bucket here. I can go in. I'm fine. <laughs> okay, good. So, if I hear the sound of running water while I'm talking, I'll take that as a as a an indication that my story wasn't interesting. So anyway, I want to tell you a story about... So when I left college, I, I had to make a decision. I, I knew I was going to go do something artistic with computers, and I wasn't sure if I was going to go and build websites or if I was going to go into game design. And I, I really wanted to get into computer game design, but in order to do that, I had to have a very expensive computer and do 3D modelling and learn these insanely complicated uh, 3D modelling computer programs. Uh, and it was a, a huge, huge investment. And the computers were slow and it took ages to get anything done. And the software was just terrifying. Mm. And so I opted to go and work in websites, which were simple. And they you didn't have to have a powerful computer because they were they, they're almost nothing. And it just seemed it was a, it was a, a, a low-risk option. I mean, an interesting one, but a low-risk option. Anyway, fast forward. <sighs> quite a long time and the other day i was chatting to a friend of mine who is very good at woodwork and i am building a new shed for my chickens like a like a roofed coop area for my chickens it's for and you I, and your chickens isn't it Mark? it's for it's my not, it's not just <laughs> yeah, for your chickens big enough to fit me in it i can stand up in it or it will be anyway so outfit that you wear now i have i have done a sort of beautiful hand drawing of what this thing is going to try to work out which bits of wood i need and i did i drew this this pen and pencil and paper drawing um and i was saying to my friend you know what i really need is i need something that i can kind of build this chicken run in online you know, just to kind of work mm. out whether or not the bits of wood actually fit together. And he mm. said, well, lots of people use SketchUp. And I thought, oh, we'll go and have a look at that. Anyway, SketchUp. Have you never used it before for anything? No. But, I, oh, I had, okay. I had never heard of it until last week. And I went oh. to this website and it is, it is my, it's the sort of circle of my career, if you like. So it is a website which contains a 3D modelling 
Yeah, so for free. It is a completely free 3D modeling thing built entirely using website technology. And I, it blows my mind that that's where we are, that the thing that was too expensive, too scary, too difficult to do, required too powerful a computer for me to do 25 years ago. And so I took the route of going into websites instead is now possible in the website. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. So I have actually, I have built my chicken coop virtually. So I've kind of extruded out all the pieces of wood that exactly the right size and, and stuck them all together in the right way. And I've built myself a corrugated plastic roof. It's a like, the, I'm not saying the coop's amazing. The app's amazing. The coop is, you know, the app can do more than my chicken coop. It's but, glorious hearing this. I've known about SketchUp for like 10 years. Oh, really? I've used it. Yeah, because I've used it to model kitchens and wow. new bathrooms and all kinds of stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm surprised, I guess, that people don't know about it. I, I kind of. Yeah, I've heard you talking I'm, about it before, Carol. Yeah. Yeah. But this is the. This is the wonderful thing about the internet, isn't it? That it, it's yeah. too vast. Some, yeah, it's someone can just vast. say to you in passing, oh, there's a complete 3D modeling package available in a small HTML canvas over there. I don't know. How, how, do, you, how do you 148, 149? You might have figured it out. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay, Greg. Sorry, don't worry. It's too quick. Yeah. yeah. That was above his head. Crow, what's your pick of the week? <laughs> Um, anybody having trouble sleeping these days? You guys, you're a good sleeper. <laughs> I, 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 I don't, I don't sleep. I don't sleep. I tend to sleep for about yeah. 45 minutes to an hour each week, if I find. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I find it's just a matter of getting, of balancing out the caffeine with the alcohol. If, yeah, if you, exactly. If you'd get those two <laughs> levels right, then it's fine. It's easy. Yeah, exactly. And, you know... It sucks. And the other day I couldn't, I couldn't sleep all week actually. And I got a bit desperate and I was looking for a pod kind of sleepy, mm. sleepy distraction. Right. And there's a lot of kind of lame, dirty, I don't know, <laughs> just inappropriate. I don't, not for me trying to sleep because I'm frustrated, oh. right? It's like three in the morning. I'm pissed off. You're the one who, Are you assuming you're, sexually? No, you're, you're the one who said dirty. You said there's a lot of dirty stuff. And then you said you're very frustrated. Uh, okay, not right. in that way. Just like I've got too much stuff in my head that is unimportant right. and it won't go away. So anyway, I'm on, I'm on, I'm Googling, Googling, mm. looking around and I find the office ASMR show, which is literally a podcast narrating the office so you can fall asleep. So here I was thinking, I see this and I'm thinking, okay, so this guy, this girl's got a script and they're going to reenact it as a one man or one girl show. But no, this guy basically watches the episode and then very calmly without any glee or enjoyment tells you what's happening in real time. Like Pam walks into the meeting and sits down. She doesn't look very happy. Dave tells Gareth he's immature. Pam walks out, still unhappy. That kind of thing. Do you so it's like an audio. Do you remember what I said about how? how <laughs> do you, one at a time, boys. Get <laughs> okay, good, Mark. Do you remember what I said just now about the internet being amazing? Yeah, <laughs> yes, to, exactly. totally take it back. <laughs> <laughs> 
Graham. <laughs> no, I, I, I say so this works, does it? <laughs> the, the entire, the entire magic that makes the show the show has been hoovered out of it, right? Like completely. It's a husk of the show. But it's so dull and quiet and familiar because you know the episodes, you fall asleep. So there's more than one episode of this. Oh, yeah. He's done four seasons. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I he's wonder done how, all four. I wonder how he manages to stay awake. And you know what? He has 215 followers on Twitter. Oh, he's doing so, all right. you know, throw him okay. a bit of love. Throw him a bit of love because, you know, it's a cute idea and he does it well. And the Office ASMR podcast helped me. How do you know he does it well? How do you, how, how do you know? Because I went to sleep. You don't, once you're asleep, you don't know if he's doing it well. It's the point. So his, his whole line is the podcast narrated in the office so you can fall asleep. It's his job. I feel like you're telling us it's boring and yet somehow you're also claiming the moral high ground. Exactly. And that is why it's my pick of the week. <laughs> it's so boring. I fall asleep. It's amazing. <laughs> it's successfully boring. Yeah, that sounds really boring. No, you're wrong. Successfully so. Wouldn't it be more boring to listen to the same episode over and over again? Why do you need four seasons of it? Well, ah. I don't want to sound sexual, Graham, but maybe that gets frustrating. <laughs> it sounds amazing. <laughs> Can we wrap this baby up? You guys, anyone out there who wants to listen, The Office ASMR podcast, I think it's fun. But not, but not fun enough to keep you awake. <laughs> and that just about wraps it up for this week. <laughs> ASMR voice, please. And that just about wraps it up for this week. <laughs> Mark, I'm sure lots of our listeners and would... That is why Graham doesn't have an ASMR chat. Like... You're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> Mark, I'm sure lots of our listeners would like to follow you online. What's the best way for <laughs> folks to do that? Oh, you can follow me at Mark Stockley on Twitter, or you can follow my chickens at Internet of Hens on Twitter. And you can follow us on Twitter at... Smash Insecurity, no G, Twitter last have a G, and we've also got a subreddit. Go looking for Smash Insecurity up there. And don't forget, make sure you never miss another episode of the show. Subscribe in your favourite podcast apps such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Huge thanks to this week's sponsors, 1Password, the Inside Security Intelligence Podcast from Recorded Future, and CrowdSec. And to our wonderful Patreon community. Thanks to all of these people, the show is free for all. For episode show notes, sponsorship info, guest lists, and the entire back catalogue of more than 200 and now 12 episodes, check out SmashingSecurity.com. 213. Well, this one's not up yet. Until next time, cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I wish we'd stick with the ASMR voice. I was looking forward to trying. Huge thank you to this week's. Do it, do it, do it. Do it. I don't want to now. I just did it. Oh, I got bored, did you?